Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Amen. Friends, do please uh, take a seat. And uh, if you'd like to follow along in the scriptures, we're going to be, I think, in Acts 17 uh, this morning, where we find Paul famously uh, in Athens. Uh, I think it was 2014 that uh, Rowan Williams uh, declared, uh, contrary, in fact, to the assertions of David Cameron at the time, that Britain had entered a post-Christian era. And uh, 2016, there was a, a British attitude survey uh, that seemed to, to back that up, uh, a majority of people self-identifying as non-Christian. And I think most would say that the Christian worldview that once uh, formed and shaped our national or many of our national institutions and civic life, uh, of course, can still be seen in many of our institutions and in much of civic life. Uh, but the substance, the praxis, the belief itself uh, is uh, in many ways fading away, leaving just the framework. Uh, the ignorance of the Christian story, the Christian narrative, most would agree, is deepening and it is widening. <clears throat> I came across this uh, recently in the Spectator magazine. As for the church itself, it is no use pretending that there is a Christian majority whose non-attendance at church is just down to laziness. If church leaders wish to keep their buildings open, they will have to start from the beginning with missionary work to recruit parishioners in a now sceptical country. And I think that's right, although I don't think it's just down to church leaders, I think it's down to the whole church uh, body. But there, of course, is no need to panic because the church has been here before. And in Acts 17, we find Paul at the beginning, uh, seeking to persuade a sceptical culture of the claims of Christ. He is addressing a pre-Christian culture, of course, which is equally ignorant of the Christian narrative. And in that sense, there are parallels between Paul's situation in Athens and our situation uh, today, our post-Christian culture today. And so it seems to me that verses 22 to 31 are not only a snapshot of how Paul uh, engaged and evangelized those uh, who had no knowledge of the Judeo-Christian story, but it also is something of a model for us how we might re-engage, re-evangelize our post-Christian culture. Very briefly, I want to draw our attention to two things. First, Paul's message. Jesus is always at the heart of Paul's message, but it is striking here that before getting to the heart, he sketches out the body, if you will. Uh, he gives us something of a bigger picture, something of a context, a framework that will make sense of his presentation of Jesus. Of course, by the way, we, what we have here are Paul's bullet points. He would have spoken for, for a long time, and this takes about a minute and a half to read. So take each clause as a sub-point he would have developed. He tells us something about the nature of God here, of course. We learn that God is both powerful and transcendent. So Paul uh, speaks about him being the creator, and uh, as the creator, distinct from creation, which would have contradicted one of the big worldviews in Athens at the time. But God is also imminent and personal. He's distinct, but he's not distant. 
Uh, he creates in order to relate, did you notice Paul saying? That would have contradicted, by the way, another big worldview uh, that was prevalent in Athens at the time. So he gives them something about the nature of God. Then he gives them something about the nature of humanity. And it's striking how Paul, it seems to me, unpacks the biblical concept of sin without using the biblical jargon of sin. Notice how he seeks to show how humanity naturally minimizes God and maximizes self, which of course is the essence of sin. Do you see how he does it? He does it in several ways. First of all, he says humanity, as demonstrated by the way the Athenians are building a thousand and one altars and temples, seeks to domesticate God by creating places for him. But Paul says, you don't create a place for God, he creates a place for you. Uh, By the way, he's not contradicting, of course, the Old Testament and the temple. That is where God symbolically chose to dwell to make a particular point. But he is critiquing uh, the, the way they think they can domesticate God. Secondly, he says, it's interesting how humanity thinks that God depends on us when, in fact, we depend on him. We easily think that he relies on us to serve him when, in fact, ultimately, of course, uh, we need God to graciously serve us in the Lord Jesus. Paul says humanity thinks that uh, God is distant from us when, in fact, we are distant from him. Verse 29, for me, is something of a, of a, of a conclusion to this. Uh, he says humanity naturally thinks that God derives from us when in fact we derive from him. God is the master craftsman, not us. We are his creation, not vice versa. We are in his image, and since we are living, animated, conscious people, God must be that too, indeed more so. So any idol made of precious metal and stone and what have you uh, will not do him justice, will always minimize him and maximize you. Therefore, says Paul, we are broken, we need saving, and we must respond to the salvation that is offered in Jesus. It is striking, isn't it, how Paul paints a big picture before he comes to the Lord Jesus and the call to repentance and the resurrection and judgment. He gives them a framework. John Stott uh, puts it like this. Uh, The Areopagus address reveals the comprehensiveness of Paul's message. He proclaimed God in his fullness as creator, sustainer, ruler, father, judge. He took in the whole of nature and history. He passed the whole of time in review from creation to consummation. He emphasized the greatness of God, not only as the beginning and the end of all things, but also as the one to whom we owe our being and to whom we must give an account. When Paul engages with a... uh, a group in front of him, a skeptical culture in front of him that has no biblical narrative. Before he gets to Jesus, he seeks to put a biblical narrative, a biblical story in place. <clears throat> Two things struck me from this. <clears throat> First, can we articulate our Christian faith without using jargon? Can we explain what it is that we believe, uh, the story of the Bible, uh, without necessarily using Bible words? Do we know what those words mean? in a way that would resonate with contemporary culture, use the language of the day. It's not always wrong to use biblical jargon, of course, but can we do it without to a culture that increasingly won't know what words like sin means? Or worse, of course, will have a wrong view of what words like sin means. And secondly, can we <coughs> briefly and simply explain the Bible story? Uh, can, we, can we sort of sketch out with people in our minds 
if someone asked, if we had the opportunity to speak, creation, fall, redemption, return of Christ, eternity. Because I think it seems to me that increasingly our culture won't know how to make sense of the claims of Christ until we set them into the unfolding story of the Bible. A little bit like trying to uh, explain a jigsaw piece without reference to the picture on the box. Jesus dying for our sins makes little sense without seeing the big picture of creation and fall. Indeed, Christian teaching on contemporary issues, on ethics, can make little sense without the big picture. Trying to explain why Christians believe what they believe about, for instance, beginning and end of life of issues in a culture that has lost sight of the fact that the Bible teaches we are made in the image of God, for instance. We need to give a slightly bigger sense of the Christian story to make sense of why it is we believe what we believe and teach what we believe about ethics. So that's the first thing, method and then more briefly, uh, sorry, message and then more briefly, uh, method. I came across this quote by an American pastor about the need to contextualize. I thought it was very helpful. He said, contextualization is giving people the Bible's answers, which they might, uh, may not uh, want to hear, to questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking in language and forms they can comprehend and through appeals and arguments with a force they can feel even if they reject them. It strikes me that's exactly what Paul does here in Athens. Uh, He tries to start with their context. He looks, he walks around Athens, he sees, he observes, he takes a note of. Then he addresses, verse 22, people of Athens, I see you are very religious. He's not commending their religiosity. He's simply noting it in order to build a connection. He notes their sense that there is something bigger than the physical world. And then he immediately identifies the problem they have with their religious system that he hopes will open a door for a presentation of Christ. As I walked around, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. In the polytheist world of Athens, there were gods for every occasion, every circumstance. You had to be very careful to appease them all. And uh, the altar to an unknown god was their attempt to cover their bases, just in case they had missed one. Well, here's a generic altar to the unknown god. But of course, Paul recognizes in that one altar the underlying ignorance and uncertainty that riddled their entire worldview. It's as if he spots a loose thread which he realizes he can pull to unravel the entire system of thought and replace it with the God who makes himself known. And Paul's claim that God is knowable, it is polite, but it is a challenge that he casts down. He has found something in their culture that the gospel addresses and he has hooked his audience. It is striking. Paul is intentional. He looks for where the gospel can address issues in the particular culture he is in, where he is, that he is facing. It strikes me that is a lesson for us too. We need to be those who are intentional as we read the newspapers, as we watch the news, as we hear what our culture is saying. Do we, do we take a moment to look for the contradictions and the confusions that riddle our culture? We must be those, I think, who uh, reflect on how the Bible explains and addresses the issues of our time, how Jesus answers uh, our culture's deepest longings, how he would fulfill, uh, or sorry, answers our uh, culture's deepest questions, I should say, and how he would fulfill 
uh, their deepest longings. Intentional as we read, and then intentional in conversation as opportunity arises, as the things of the day are discussed, as we have spotted confusions and contradictions, we are in a position to speak uh, how the Bible speaks uh, into them with a clearer word, a better word, a life-giving word, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. So Heavenly Father, we, <coughs> excuse me, we pray uh, this morning for us, we pray uh, for these words of Paul to come alive to us. We pray you'd minister to us individually, but also as a church as we have need, as we face an increasingly post-Christian culture. Help us not to panic, but to be those who uh, continue to faithfully uphold uh, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in our own life, but also those who seek to, as opportunity arises, to uh, speak of Jesus and in the context of the whole story of salvation. And we pray you'd be pleased to bring many in our culture to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.